Well, good morning and welcome again. How about that sea of aqua that you see? Is that exciting? We'll get to that in a minute. And those of you that are watching at home right now, it'll make sense, I promise. Everything I say eventually makes sense, right, guys? Um, some announcements that I have for us. First of all, we're going to have our dinner in the park coming August 11th. That's a Wednesday evening. You're going to bring your own food to that. Um, and Trevor is organizing some kickball and just some family friendly fun. And so I hope you'll be able to come to that. Last week, it's at Briar Park. Last week we said it would be on the 11th and the 25th. We're going to see how it goes on the 11th. Okay, so you better bring the fun because it's kind of dependent on you. But something cool that we're going to do is we're going to invite our soccer club families out to that as well. And so we are just hoping for our Brookview warm, inviting, fun force to receive those families who might be nervous about coming um, to come to that with their kids. So I hope you can come out to that on that Wednesday. And we're really looking forward to, to being able to do that outdoors. That will be weather dependent. So if it is pouring down rain, we're not going to do it. I mean, kickball is really fun for kids in the mud, but we're grown-ups, so we melt. <laughs> um, some people, you know, your hair. It's just, it's, it's hard, right? We get, yes, okay, there it is. My curly-haired girls, you know, you know. How's the humidity treating you? Okay, we'll move on. We'll move on. Um, we also have an online communication card. We love hearing from you throughout the week. You can respond to anything you're hearing about here this morning. We also have a team of people that are praying for you throughout the week. Which camera do I look at when I do announcements? I don't even know anymore. Right there. Got it. Okay. <laughs> the important things, right? We just love having you watch from home for those of you that aren't able to be with us. Um, we know that this week some things have changed, and um, with COVID restrictions, there are some urgings. Here's the deal. Watch for Costco. We march with Costco. Okay, so if ever you're wondering what is going to be happening at church, whatever you're seeing at Costco is probably what you're going to see here. Okay, so that's kind of just, um, I know a few of you this morning were like, are we supposed to mask? It's still optional to be masking. And so we want you to have the freedom to wear or to not wear, whatever makes sense um, for you. So welcome, glad you're here. Um, to close, I want to invite everyone and anyone who is involved with Soccer Club this week to come on up here and surround me on the stage and what we're going to do is I've asked Tony Ellersick to come and to pray for us. Um, this is a pretty cool thing that we get to do together. Annie Hiller, you're helping on Friday. Come on up here. This is your very first call out. <laughs> Welcome to Brookview. <laughs> Scooch together, Dave Bendemir. Get up here. Who else am I seeing? Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. I'm scouring the crowd. There, for those of you watching at home, there are still people left in the audience. Um, <laughs> but we have a team of over 35 volunteers that are going to be 
going to be literally sweating it out this week at Mount Lake Terrace High School. And um, as we did our soccer coach training last Sunday, one thing that we talked about was the reality that first graders right now are kids that have never been in a classroom, likely. And, and so soccer club might look different, and it might be when we say line up, that would be a little bit foreign to more kids than it should be because of the year that they've had. But what an opportunity that we have that God has put in front of us. And we've had a few cancellations and, and, and shifts in what's going on. I see Jane Davis in the lobby. Come on in here. Get up here. You are our Brookview store lady. We need you. Um, so we, we are ending with about 133 kids that are going to show up on Monday morning, and we're excited. So I'm going to shut up and hand this off to you, sir. Awesome. Would you pray for me? You specifically. <laughs> Jesus, what an amazing event that we look forward to, and what a blessing that we actually get to put it on again um, through all the craziness that's been going on. And so we just want to pray for your presence. Um, this is an amazing week where kids just get to be showered with love and um, encouragement and are taught characteristics that maybe, you know, some of that stuff might not be present at home or uh, maybe there's just kids that really need to feel love. And this is a place that they will just get maybe more than they can even handle. And there's a team of volunteers that are ready to love these kids and to just serve you and your name. And so we just praise you and thank you for that. So I pray for all these volunteers that you would just give them um, hearts of joy and excitement and love that just comes from you to just shower these kids, fill them up and uh, prepare the hearts of the kids to come and have a blast and um, just feel that love. Thank you again. I pray for Jen, <laughs> specifically, that she gets some rest and some extra boost of energy through all of this. And we just love you so much, and we love serving you, and especially in this fun way. So thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. message is gone. Uh, okay. Talk amongst yourselves. I have to re-download the thing. I don't know how that happened. That's never happened, you guys. Clearly, Jesus is up to something amazing, and Satan's trying to stop it. Oh, here we go. Here we go, here we go. 
<sighs> Good morning. Hey, this is a lively, healthy group this morning. You guys look fantastic. I'm seeing some fresh haircuts. People that have been lifting weights. You know, if you, if you follow Jesus... If you apprentice under Jesus, if you learn the way of Jesus from Jesus and you live into his way, if this is real, if God really is real and Jesus really is his son and the Holy Spirit really is inside all who put their trust in Jesus, then certain things should be normal for those folks. We, we should expect certain things to happen inside of them in increasing measure over time. Things like peace and courage and wisdom and discernment and love and grace and humility. But while some people experience this stuff, they really do more and more, some people don't. Some people experience this stuff in really big ways. Other people kind of experience it, but in much smaller ways. So why is that? Why is it so different for different people? Well, today we're going to look at another encounter from the life of Jesus. But in this encounter, he touches on what it takes to really receive from him. Because he is the great giver. He's always wanting to give, but not everyone, not everybody is able to receive. Some can and some can't. So here's the backdrop for this passage. Jesus has been going all over Israel, teaching that the kingdom of God is near. Like everywhere he would go, he would teach, and, and that his message everywhere got summarized in this way. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is near. He was saying that he had this, this unique authority to usher in the very kingdom of God. And while many were, were very excited about this, some were nervous, some were skeptical, some were doubtful. So Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 38, it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So these religious leaders confront Jesus, demanding that he give them a sign. Now, it, if you're reading through the book of Matthew, it can feel kind of odd because Jesus has been healing people right and left. You know, like Jesus has even bought, brought a girl back from the dead. But clearly, these miracles were, were not enough. They were looking for something else. So Jesus responds. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, if you're those guys, you're like, Really? He says, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we'll get to the sign of Jonah in just a minute. But before we tackle that, just notice that Jesus is not generally in favor of people seeking signs. He, he will not play the religious leader's game. Instead, he calls them wicked and adulterous. Now, wicked seems pretty harsh, like really strong language, and it is. But if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, the first person to demand a sign from Jesus was Satan himself. 
Okay, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this wall. If you are the Son of God, turn this rock into bread. So Jesus has encountered demands for signs before. Now, the second term, adulteress, taps into a theme that runs all the way through the entire Bible. One of the dominant metaphors for God's relationship to his people is the relationship of a bride to a groom. So in effect, Jesus is saying the kind of people who seek a sign tend to be the kind of people who do not remain faithful. Because their love and their loyalty is built on what satisfies them in a particular moment. Their, their faithfulness is contingent upon this steady flow of signs. So Jesus says they will be given no signs except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And um, many of you are, are pretty familiar with the story of Jonah. How, how many of you remember the VeggieTales movie? <laughs> Heck yeah. Those wicked Ninevites, what, what made them so wicked? Yeah, they slapped each other with fishes. <laughs> wicked Ninevites. So, okay, let me, let me recap the story just so we're all kind of on the same page. A, a Jewish prophet from Israel is called by God to go to Nineveh, a large civilization of the enemies of Israel. And Jonah says, yeah, no. And he actually goes in the opposite direction. He gets into a boat heading directly away from Nineveh. And on the way, there's a storm and he's thrown into the sea where he's immediately swallowed by a, a massive fish. And after three days, he's vomited onto land by that fish. And he decides, you know what? Maybe I will go to Nineveh after all. <laughs> so he goes to Nineveh and he preaches a measly five-word sermon and all of Nineveh repents and turns to God. Back to Jesus. What exactly is the sign of, of the prophet Jonah? Well, there are several options that scholars tend to offer. Option one, Jesus' death and burial mirror Jonah's three days inside the fish. Okay. Option two, Jesus' resurrection mirrors Jonah coming out of the fish. Option three, Jesus' preaching to invite repentance mirrors Jonah's preaching to the people of Nineveh. And it seems to me that the, the best option is probably all three. All three put together. That Jesus' life and preaching ministry are a first sign of who he is, but that he will be fully vindicated through his death and resurrection. That when God raised Jesus from the dead, he placed his divine stamp of approval on Jesus' life and his words and his teaching and his message. So, so in effect, the leaders will get the sign that they're looking for. It's coming. The only question is, will they have eyes to see it? Jesus continues. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus references the change in the people of Nineveh. The, the Ninevites were like, they were like brutal people. Like prior to Jonah and his message. They, they just plagued Israel. They plagued them through violence and murder and human trafficking. The, the Ninevites, there's no way around it. They were wicked, 
sinful people, and they were Israel's enemies. Furthermore, they didn't even worship God. They worshiped their own set of gods. Yet, when Jonah came to them with the message of God's warning, they responded. They actually repented. Like we're told that they, they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes, which was an ancient way of displaying mourning, mourning over their previous behavior, right? And we're told that they even put sackcloth on their cows. The idea is in Nineveh, even the cows repented, right? In modern day times, we would say even the labradoodles repented, <laughs> right? And so notice this, on judgment day, where are the people of Nineveh? Well, they're standing with God. On God's side. God takes these outsiders and he makes them insiders. Next, Jesus makes another comparison. He says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Now, most scholars agree that the queen of the south was the queen of Sheba, and her story is told in the book of 1 Kings. And in her day, Solomon was, was ruling over Israel, and he was touted and just well-known all over that whole region to be the wisest man to ever live. So the queen of Sheba loads up camels and spices and gold and precious stones, and she travels to Israel to find out for herself, to, we're told, to test Solomon with hard questions. So upon meeting Solomon, she asked all of her questions, and then she accepted his answers with awe and responded by worshiping God. She praises Yahweh, the God of Israel. And historical traditions are strong that Sheba was actually in modern-day Ethiopia. Okay, so the queen of Sheba was a foreigner. She was not a worshiper of God. She was not a member of Israel. And yet, like the people of Nineveh, she responded to what she heard. Now, Solomon lived way, way, way before Jesus. So the queen from Sheba didn't have the whole picture, right? She didn't, she didn't understand what was going to happen on the cross. She didn't know about the teachings of Jesus. She didn't know about the resurrection. And likely, when you think about it, she probably lived a very immoral lifestyle by the standards of the Pharisees. And yet on Judgment Day, like the Ninevites, where is she? She's on God's side. She is with God. How is that possible? Well, it's because she responded to what she heard. Both the queen and the Ninevites, foreigners who didn't follow the laws of Israel, who lacked the full picture of the kingdom, when they heard truth, they responded to it. And God's heart, that's always God's heart. God's heart is to make outsiders insiders. So Jesus points to both the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba and says that on the coming day of judgment, they will both stand with God. And where exactly are the religious leaders going to be on that day? Jesus says, they're the ones being judged. These righteous, self-righteous, holy men are the ones being judged. This would have scandalized these guys. They're like, wait, wait, what? Wait, what? They're going to judge us? And Jesus is like, yes, exactly. Because they listened and they repented and you thought you knew it all. 
Now notice, God is slow to anger, and he is abounding in in compassion. He's kind. He's gracious to to outsiders, to those who repent, to the humble, to those that know that they don't have it all together, and they ask him for help. And yet there's no way around it. We will all be accountable for what we've heard and for what we have or have not responded to. So the religious leaders who have heard Jesus' teachings— who have witnessed his miracles, who have studied the scriptures, who know a lot and yet have not responded. To them, Jesus is giving a very stern warning. So to emphasize it, he uses another word picture. And if you're reading along and you're like, it feels like Jesus sort of takes a direction, like you're like, what? Uh, This feels, feels weird. It feels random to us. But he continues. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, So when a demon leaves a person that it has possessed, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house, okay, to the person I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Uh, now, you got that? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, okay, so as interesting as it would be to talk about like the mechanics of exorcism to give you, you all like five steps for how to cast demons out of your friends, that's, that's not ultimately the point of his teaching here. We're like, okay, what is the point? Uh, Well, Jesus has been going around, and he's been casting demons out of people, and he's been healing people, and he's been delivering people, but he's also been teaching people about the kingdom of God, telling people that the kingdom of God is now at hand, and then he shows them the presence of that very kingdom by healing people and by casting out demons, and then teaching people a completely new way to live. So here's here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have come through and cleaned up a lot of mess. I've repaired a lot of brokenness. And just like the way a person that's been healed or freed from demonic possession is now looking much better, even though the job isn't finished. Okay, that house is, is, is free of demons for now. But, but that person needs to fill their life with something new and good and not just leave the house empty. To have the evil removed, but then, then not move in a new occupant, a, a type of goodness, a new type of goodness. It leaves that house very, very vulnerable. And you guys, this is a huge idea. This is something that we don't often think all that much about. Jesus is saying that that you can actually be freed from a particular evil in your life. You can experience and even see Jesus' ministry and even be touched by his delivering hand or his power in your life. But if you don't then change your internal world, you risk setting yourself up for a massive fall. So even if Jesus frees you from some issue, delivers you from a problem, if you don't allow his teaching and his way to take up residence in you, then you've just become a tidy house with no occupant. It's empty. And you are likely to fall into new broken patterns 
In fact, Jesus says you could end up even worse off. Story continues. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So Jesus has just finished this really intense exchange with these religious leaders, only to be interrupted by somebody going, psst, Jesus, your mom and your bros, they're outside. They really want to talk with you. So picture it. Jesus likely, he's inside a house, okay? And his family hasn't come in. They're standing outside. So, so Jesus responds, and again, this is not what we would expect. He responds. He says, he says, it says, he replied to him, whoever the guy is, it's like, Jesus. He, he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What in the world is happening here? I mean, there's no denying that Jesus is distancing himself from his family. That, that much is clear. But why? And I just want to say, before I get to that, some of you, you're, you're, you're hung up. You're, you're a ways back. You're like, wait, wait, wait. Jesus had brothers? <laughs> you have sisters too? Yes, he did. Imagine that. Like Joseph and Mary had other kids after Jesus. It happened. And so sometimes Jesus' brothers... And Mary, like, they travel with him. Like, they seem to kind of be a part of things. They seem to be on board with stuff. Other times, his brothers tend to sit on the outside critiquing Jesus. They, 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 there were times where they took more, a posture more like that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They sat with arm, arms crossed, skeptical, and critical. Jesus had become a public figure, and he was the, the source of a ton of criticism. And so at times, they got real uncomfortable, and they distanced themselves from their older brother, Jesus. There's actually a fascinating exchange between Jesus and his brothers in John chapter 7. Okay, I encourage you to check that out sometime. John 7. At the very beginning of the chapter, his brothers are downright mean to him. And John tells us, he explains, he says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So we know that they were not all in all the time. And, and when you think about, okay, I think it makes sense. How many of you have a big brother? Yeah, a lot of you. Okay. Question for you guys. What would your big brother have to do to convince you that he is God? <laughs> I, really, I mean, come on. I mean, during his life and ministry, Jesus' bros, like, they struggled to be all in. You can imagine it. Uh, but, but after then, and here's what's interesting. After his humiliating death on the cross as a criminal, then they decided to go all in. Like, they became leaders. Like, in fact, his little brothers, James and Jude, they wrote letters. They wrote books that are in the Bible. That's pretty cool. Like from skeptics to all in, like what happened? Like how, how would their brother's death as a criminal possibly change their mind? And when you think about it, that doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't that only confirm that Jesus was a phony? Wouldn't, wouldn't that only confirm that he was a fraud? And, and what's more, at, at that point in time, all Jesus' followers were being persecuted ruthlessly. They're being executed. 
Okay, if you're one of his brothers, why would you jump on board at that point? Well, the simple answer is, they saw him crucified and dead, and then they saw him back from the dead. They ate with him, and they talked with him along with the disciples. What would your big brother have to do to convince you that he's God? I don't know how you'd answer that, but for the brothers of Jesus, it took him coming back from the dead. It took the sign of Jonah. So here, Jesus looks at his disciples and those that are in the room ready to listen, and he makes a profound point about who his deeper and truer family is, who it is that he's most loyal to and who it is that's most loyal to him. And he's saying anyone who listens to him and anyone who responds is family. Whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I love his word choice here, like whoever. Okay, well, what about the sinners? Whoever. What about my enemies? Whoever. What about foreigners? Whoever. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. What about women? Whoever. What about people who don't have the whole picture and still hold some wrong beliefs? Whoever. Whoever listens and responds to what they hear. So, okay, let's step back. You guys, there's, there's a lot happening in this passage, right? It goes a lot of different directions. You think about it, it's kind of interesting. Like, there's adultery, final judgment, demon possession, and family drama. <laughs> this is made for TV, baby. But the, the point is actually really pretty singular and, and pretty simple. And, and we can kind of break this passage into just two interactions. First, Jesus and the leaders, and second, Jesus and his family. And then further, like into two sets of contrast. There's the scribes and the Pharisees versus the Ninevites and the queen. And then there's Jesus's mother and brothers versus Jesus' disciples. So let's reflect a little bit more on what each of these characters represent. Hey, first, scribes and Pharisees versus the Ninevites and the queen. In essence, the religious leaders asked Jesus to prove himself. That to prove that what he was saying was, was right, they sought a sign. And, and many of us, if we're honest, we've asked Jesus to prove himself, to give us a sign. Uh, we, we say or we think things like, if Jesus would just do this, if Jesus would just show up in this way, if Jesus would just do this thing, perform this miracle, then I would be willing to believe in him and follow him. And yet, Jesus often refuses and will not play into our requests for signs. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that Jesus is not for evidence. But he seems to believe that his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection speak for themselves. Further, I wonder, even if we were met with personal evidence, so say whatever your sign is, yeah, you're like, if Jesus would just do this, whatever your sign is, imagine that you were granted that sign. Would it really be enough for you? Like, would it really? Because I wonder if soon you wouldn't be asking for another sign, and then another sign, and then another sign. Often, the more fixated we are on signs, on the sensational, the less likely we are 
to hear the still, small voice of God, which is far more often how he shows up in the world and in our lives. And this is the classic problem with sign-seeking. If God moves in a way that's not exactly what you're looking for, then you are likely to miss it and assume that God is absent. I mean, think about the miracles that these religious leaders saw. They saw healings. They saw demons casted out. They saw a little girl raised from the dead. They saw Jesus feed thousands on a hillside from a little kid's lunch sack. And yet, they sit back and they say, hey, we're not sure. Show us a sign. Like, like there, there's a modern-day uh, parable that I, I heard years ago, and it goes like this. There's a flood, and, and so a man of faith climbs up on the roof of his house and prays, God, I know that you are real, and God, I know that you are powerful, so show yourself, Lord, in this moment and deliver me from this flood. A few minutes later, a small boat shows up with a few of his neighbors in it. And they say, dude, come on, hop in. And he says, no thanks. I prayed God would deliver me from this flood, and I know he will, so thanks, but no thanks. Second time, another boat from his neighbors come by, comes by, same offer, same response. A third boat from his neighbors comes, same offer, same response, and the waters rise and the man drowns. So he gets to heaven, and he seeks out God, and he's kind of mad. He says, listen, God, like I was a man of great faith. I prayed nonstop. I told people about you. I served in my church. God, I even tithed. Why didn't you respond to my request for deliverance from the flood? And God says, I did. I tried to rescue you three times, but you refused, idiot. The danger of sign-seeking is that there actually can be signs all around you, but because you have predetermined exactly how they should all look, because you get overly fascinated with the sensational, you miss God in the ordinary. For some of you, you feel like God is absent in your life right now. I mean, you, just, you look at your life and you go, God is absent. Are you sure? For some of you, he may be sending boat after boat after boat. Or maybe you've been really asking him to reveal himself. And what he's doing is he's sending you people. He's sending you person after person. Are you certain that he has not responded to your requests? But, but Jesus doesn't just critique the leader's quest for a sign. He also critiques their failure to examine and to change their inner world. They, they refused to, to take his teaching and then turn inward with it, inside themselves. Instead, they focus on critiquing Jesus, like critiquing his words for how they're wrong and how they disagree and, and how they might be offended by those words. And so they hear the same words as the others, but they walk away unchanged. Jesus is deeply concerned with the state of our inner world. His parable of the demons in an empty house is, is all about this point. If you clean out an, an evil spirit or maybe think of like an evil pattern in your life, then you actually, you need to replace it with something new, something fresh, something good. The empty, tidy house will not stay empty forever. So the question is, will it be filled with more of Jesus and his way 
or something else. Like in recovery circles, this gets talked about a lot. People will, will find freedom from one addiction, but then very often it just gets replaced with another one. The, the, the tidy, empty house is vulnerable. It's very vulnerable. And so this leads us to the last comparison. Jesus' mother and brothers versus Jesus' disciples. And it's important to notice that, that Jesus doesn't like slam his family. Right? He doesn't call his mom and his brothers wicked and adulterous. He, he doesn't really say much about them at all. But notice where Jesus' mother and brothers are in this scene. They're standing outside. Matthew goes out of his way for us to see it. He tells us twice that they are standing outside. It's so redundant. You're like, Matthew, I got it the first time. But we aren't told why. There's, there's no explanation given. So, so you know, it's, we don't want to run wild with speculations. But I, I came across an interesting idea that's been proposed. Could it be that Jesus' family had simply become too familiar with Jesus. Like his brothers, think about being a little brother of Jesus. They had known him their entire lives. He had always been around for their entire lives. He'd always been there. He'd lived in their house. They had heard him snore, right? They, they went into the bathroom after him, right? Son of God, I don't think so. Right? Their whole life, Jesus has been present. His laugh was familiar. His reactions to life events was familiar. Maybe his, his goodness and, and wisdom, when you think about it, just weren't all that surprising to them. I mean, in short, they just didn't feel like they had a lot to learn from Jesus. Like they kind of already knew him. They already knew it all. Uh, when Jen and I go out for dinner, sometimes we like to people watch. Or maybe you could say people judge. I'll let you decide. Uh, sometimes we go out, maybe you've had this experience. We go out and we see a couple sitting at another table and they're just sitting there, not talking. Just silence. Right? Maybe they're both on their phones or maybe they just aren't talking for some reason. Now, zero judgment if you enjoy si like silent meals with your sweetie. Like that's fine. Uh, sometimes that's the right thing. It's, it's needed. Or, you know, maybe you're just there and you're just really into the food. You're just like, mm, this is so delicious, right? You can't even look up. So, I, okay, I, uh, you know, I, I, and by the way, I'm not innocent of this at all. Um, I, I get, I, I've been on my phone from time to time, and I do work at it. We as a family work at it. A couple of years ago, I took Brooklyn to um, Azteca and Mukilteo, and um, while we were in there, just the two of us in there, and I, she was like 11 years old, I got a text that uh, was somebody in the church that really needed something, and they needed it quickly. So for like 20 seconds, I took my phone out, and I responded so that they could do what they needed to do. Well, right at that moment, the manager of Azteca happened to walk up to our table. Now, Brooklyn's like 11, and she's like the cutest thing ever, and this is, you know, a, a daddy-daughter dinner and all that. And we've been going to this Azteca since Brooklyn was born, like before she was born. This guy has known our family for a really long time, and he's known Brooke her whole life. So he gets to the end of the table, and he just looks at me in disgust, and he's like, put your phone away, man. You're here with your beautiful daughter. Pay attention to her. Come on, amigo. 
And you guys, it was actually awesome. Brooklyn like giggled at me and she was like, she's like, ha ah, dad, you're in trouble. <laughs> but I, I would imagine that that guy, you know, you think about working in the restaurant business year after year after year. How much of that kind of stuff has he seen and how much must it drive him crazy? Years of watching families or couples not talking. Now, sometimes it really is. Sometimes, you guys, it really is just a quick text or whatever. It really is. But with couples, sometimes I wonder if there's sometimes something deeper going on. If sometimes they feel like, you know what, there just isn't anything exciting left to discover. Like, like the relationship just has no room left for growth because they already know everything about each other. Jen and I will do premarital and we'll, we'll meet people that are doing premarital and they're like, I just, I just know what he's thinking all the time. <laughs> Listen, sweetheart. <laughs> That's ridiculous. But what happens is we can start to feel that way. Start to feel like, yeah, I've pretty much got this other person all figured out. And at this point, you, you feel like, I, I pretty much know all there is to know. And what happens is, and it's just real easy to just kick it into neutral, stop being curious, stop engaging, stop asking questions, stop listening, stop learning, stop growing. And you guys, sometimes that very same dynamic can happen in our walk with Jesus. Like following Jesus can start to feel a little bit like a silent date. We, we stop seeing Jesus as amazing. We stop being curious. We stop asking questions. We stop pursuing him with any real intensity. And like a couple on a silent date, we may show up and sit, but we really are not there to engage on a deep level. Jesus wants more for us than that. But it will take a different way of seeing him. Like, contrast the disciples to his mother and brothers. The disciples are with Jesus. They're inside the house. They're as close to Jesus as they can get. Many of our English translations say that Jesus was, was pointing toward his disciples. When he said, okay, here are my mother and brother, brothers and sisters. But some scholars have noted that in the Greek, a better translation would actually be that he was stretching his hand out over. Because it actually takes five Greek words to explain the motion that he made. And the picture is actually more of a hand just kind of stretched out over them, which may indicate, if you think about it, that the disciples, and those were the, they were sitting at his feet. Disciples in Jesus' day would, would often sit at their rabbi's feet in order to learn from them. So they were close in. They were listening. This is a language of intimacy. They were like there, and they were hanging on every word, and they were so curious, and they were so eager. So back to our questions from the beginning of this message. How is it that different people can hear the words of Jesus, and some are deeply changed by them, and yet others are hardly touched? Why are some infused with passion and wisdom and, and courage and strength and, and hope and other people can experience the very same thing and they just feel like, meh? Why do some people encounter Jesus and they grow and they experience transformation and others just remain unchanged over years? 
What I, I, to summarize what we've read today, I'd say this. I'd say that Jesus is, is wanting to give us something. Like he's desperate to give it. But we have to have the right heart posture in order to receive it. And if I had to summarize that posture based on this passage, I'd use three words. Hungry, humble, and teachable. And over, over these past years, some of you guys have been so shaped by Jesus. I mean, I, I look around this room and I see lives that have, have been utterly transformed. Like utterly transformed. So, some of you guys have found, you have found so much peace and you have become wise and mature and you've become kind and gracious and you have a deep security inside of you and a calm about who you are and you have learned to love so deeply and give so effectively and you're filled with courage and grace. And when I look at those of you that that has been your experience and that is what has happened in you, I notice you're hungry. You really do want more of Jesus and his way. And so you put yourself in places to be close to him, and you come to that place with open hands. You're humble. You recognize that you have room to grow. You're eager to grow. You're motivated. And so you, you sit at the feet of Jesus, teachable. You're, you're there, and you're ready to respond. Some of you guys have been utterly transformed over these past years. Others of you, you're, you're not in that spot yet. I mean, some of you, you're, you're not sure about all of this. You're just kind of checking things out, and you're still sitting at a distance. And, and at this point in, in the, your whole process, you're kind of sitting with arms folded. You're not sure about Jesus. You're not sure about Christianity. You're not sure about the church. And you're not sure what you think about the Bible. Now, others of you are not exactly in that spot. Like, you believe to you, Jesus is, is the Son of God, and his way is right and, and good, and you see the Bible as Scripture, and so that's, it's not, that's not the issue. But you're not hungry. You, you, you're not passionate. It's like, it's like you, you, show up to, you, just, you show up to stuff, but it's like, it's like a silent date. And you guys, here's what I'll tell you. I have been in all three of those places in my life. I've been in all three. I know what it is to be on the outside with arms folded. I know what it is to have doubt and skepticism and just remain at a distance. I, I wasn't raised in the church. Like, you guys, this all seemed like, to me, it seemed like Santa for grown-ups. I, 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 but at a certain point, people that I loved started teaching me about it. And suddenly, I was in this really weird spot and I saw, I began to see beauty in it, but I just couldn't seem to cross over to becoming like a believer. And so I stayed in that place for years and it was a really, really, really uncomfortable place to be. So how did I finally cross over? I don't even know, but here's what I do know. Somewhere along the way, I started to pray like this. God, if, if you are real, if this is real, if this really is legit, then show me and help me to see it. 
Help me to understand what I need to understand. Help me to make sense of all this. God, I don't know if you're real or if you're here or if you can hear me or what, but if you are, please help me. If this is real, help me. And you guys, I prayed that kind of a prayer in one form or another for a really long season. And at the end of that season, God did what I asked. And one day, I found myself in a completely different place. I started to see things that I I didn't see before. I started to understand things that I couldn't understand before. I started to feel things that I have never felt before. And I don't even know exactly how or when it all happened, but of this, I'm sure it happened. I kept asking, and somehow it happened. And at many times, then, I've been in a place where I'm, I'm hungry, and I'm humble and teachable. And so, you guys, God has done serious work in me. I mean, the peace and the hope and the life and the joy. And I know some of you are like, yeah, you're not that great. <laughs> I know. But you guys, you should have seen me before. <laughs> okay, like, I am a work in progress. But there has been progress. And, and yet, I'd be lying if I said, I haven't also been through seasons where my walk with Jesus has felt a lot like a silent date. So what did I do in those seasons? What do you do? I don't know. But I kind of approached it like I do my marriage. You guys are not going to believe this, but Jen and I have had some silent dates over the years. You're like, no, you guys are so bad. No, we've had some silent dates. And sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we're distant. Sometimes we're distracted. Sometimes we're just frustrated with each other. It happens. And we can go on a couple of those. You know, we can do that. But what we've, we cannot do that year after year. We can't. So what do we do to end that cycle? Well, I know what we do is both of us are kind of all in on this, and we just refuse to stay there. We talk through it, and we express love to each other, and we change our schedule, and we plan something exciting, or we get creative, or we do something, but we refuse to stay in that place. Now, when it comes to Jesus, there's, there's no formula. Like, there's no formula for this. I can't be like, here's three steps. Like, what I know is this. You have to refuse to stay in that place. If you're currently going on silent dates with Jesus, you have to refuse to stay in that place. You have to tell him that you don't like where things are, and you have to ask him to help you to not continue to stay in that place. It's just a simple prayer. Like, Jesus, I don't like where I am with you. Help me. And then you keep praying that prayer. And when you get a sense of what to do, you do it. And then you keep praying that prayer. Jesus, I, I want my walk to be vibrant. I want to be learning and I want to be growing and I want to be walking closely with you. And so help me. And I'm convinced, you guys, that Jesus is trying to give something extraordinary to each one of us. But we have to have the right heart posture to receive it. So be honest. What's the posture of your heart these days? 
If it's hungry and humble and teachable, man, keep doing it. I am so excited for you and what Jesus is doing and will continue to do. So excited. But if that's not where you are, like honestly it's not, then you have to ask yourself, do you really want something different? Do you really? And if you do, ask Jesus to help you. Like really ask. And then when you know what to do next, you do it. And then you ask. And when you know what to do next, you do it. And you ask, and then you do it. And you ask, and then you do it. That's how this works. But you keep asking. You keep asking. And you keep working at it. Father in heaven, your desire to bring those that are on the outside to the inside is staggering. And when I think about people like the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, and yet your posture toward them was one of open arms. That's amazing. And we can be in this room and hear a message like this and, and feel a lot of guilt or shame or inadequacy. And if that's what's gone on here, something's gone horribly wrong. Because that's not my intent, and I don't believe that's your heart at all. Your posture towards us is always one of open arms, extended. But we need to respond to it. And sometimes it's hard, and we need your help. And so, God, this morning, I pray for anyone who's in a spot where they say, I don't like where I'm at. I want to be somewhere different. I pray that you would meet them. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would speak to them and reassure them and just whisper love to them. And I pray, God, you would help them respond to it. We can get so stuck and we don't know what to do, but you do. And so would you help us. In Jesus' name, amen.